0: Welcome to the global phenomenon, Surviving the Survivor, where we bring you the best guests in all of true crime. This is a STS special, Surviving My Biggest Case. Here's your host, Emmy Award-winning journalist, Joel Waldman.
1: What's up, STS Nation, and welcome to another episode of Surviving the Survivor. Tonight, we bring you an STS special called Surviving My Biggest Case, And you know her face by now. She is a frequent best guest on the podcast. Tracy Walder is one of the few women to serve in both the Directorate of Operations at the CIA and also as a special agent at the FBI. From 2000 to 2004, Tracy served the CIA's Counterterrorism Center Weapons of Mass Destruction Group followed by the FBI's Chinese counterintelligence team. During her time at the CIA, Tr- Tracy traveled to war zones and many other countries. She now works as an author and adjunct professor of criminal justice at Texas Christian University, and she also sits on the board of directors of Girl Security and she is the author of The Unexpected Spy. Tracy, I'm psyched for this. Thank you for joining us. I know we were just talking uh, off camera a little bit. Do we do one half CIA, one half FBI? Because uh, not a lot of people can say that, but you're one of the few. So, <laughs> But we decided we'll stick to uh, some interesting stuff you dealt with at uh, CIA, um, starting with um, 9-11. But prior to that, I mean, what made a woman like yourself, um, go into the CIA to begin with, and then ultimately the FBI.
2: So you can say it, what made a blonde Jewish sorority girl. <laughs> well,
1: uh, if, I thought, if I saw you at Target, I wouldn't be, my first thought would not be CIA, FBI, but there you maybe go. that's what made
2: me good at my job though, Joel. Yeah, exactly. But thanks so much for having me. Yeah. So, um, you know, it's really interesting what made me get into that career. You know, I'm 45, so I grew up in a pre-9-11 world. I always like to tell people, like, when I grew up, because I think that's an impetus of why I joined. Um, terrorism wasn't, I don't want to say it wasn't a thing, but it wasn't top of mind. Like, I, I grew up with, like, Oklahoma City um, and Ruby Ridge. Those were the things that, like, shaped my version of terrorism. But um, as a member of the Jewish community, um, you know, my synagogue always had a ton of security, like all the time. And I think when you're 10 and you ask your parents why, <laughs> like, they, they didn't necessarily do the best job of like explaining that to me. But all I knew is that, you know, I wasn't allowed to go to the Middle East. And I think when you're young that is something then you're like, well, I want to rebel against that. And I want to go to the middle East. <laughs> and so, um, I, my dad was a college professor. So I had a full ride at USC cause that's where he taught. So that's where I went. Um, and I never knew though, I always had an interest in the middle East and an interest in this terrorism thing, but I didn't know that there were jobs that you could do in it because again, September 11th hadn't happened yet. So it wasn't, you know, in front of your face, I feel like it is today. And so, um, I decided well I guess I'll be a high school history teacher. I really liked history. Figure that was a good application of it. Um and so I went to USC and I majored in history. Uh, you know this again was would have been 95 96ish time frame.
1: But you um, must remember the first World Trade Center bombing, right? In 93. So I, knew,
2: I remember the first World Trade Center World Trade Center bombing in 93 with the blind shake um, and all of that. And I think That was definitely at the forefront of my mind, but the issue was, is most of the attacks that Al Qaeda was perpetrating were really in sort of sub-Saharan Africa and like the Gulf area of the Middle East. It really hadn't been this huge, massive scale attack. Um, And then it got overshadowed, I guess, if you will, by Oklahoma City, Um, you know, because the death toll there was, was a lot higher. And so it was, it just wasn't at the top of my mind until it was 1997, and I was watching Osama bin Laden. He did his very first and only interview with the West, and it was with CNN. It was Peter Arnett and Peter Bergen. And I was working out, um, watching you know the TVs up on the thing, and he was sitting there with two AK-47s right next to him. And it was in that interview he issued his fatwa or declaration of war against the United States, and then to take it one step further, he issued a war against the Jews. And I think for me, you know, some kid, right? is like, wow, it's about me now, right? <laughs> You're know, being self-centered, you know, what is this? And so instead of getting angry, I think I got curious and I wanted to learn everything I could about where this guy was from. So I started taking um, like modern Middle Eastern history classes, international affairs, whatever I could do to still get out in four years and keep my scholarship, mm-hmm. but um, get exposure, I guess, to that Area of the world, and you know, I know some of the viewers might think I'm silly, but it, again, and maybe you can attest to this too. It wasn't apparent to me where you would go at that time to work a job in the counterterrorism mission. It just wasn't. It wasn't the issue du jour in terms of like geopolitics, I guess. And so, um, at I, this, this
1: point, was- did your father, who's a professor at USC, did he know what you were up to at this? But they were getting interested in this.
2: No. Nope. <laughs> um, yeah, it was really interesting. I, I don't want to say hit a lot for my parents, but, yeah. um, no,
1: you hit a lot. No. <laughs> yeah.
2: I just, I never, I don't know. I just never had that conversation with, with them. Um, I, what, did I do? what were you, what
1: were you, what were you majoring in at that time? Right. History. Like what were you on history? You were on okay.
2: history and okay. um, I knew I had to be out in four years. Because otherwise I'd have to pay. Um, and so I don't it just wasn't apparent to me. But um I went to a career fair, um, not because I wanted to, but because it was on my way to my astronomy class. Um, and this is back in the like dot-com boom days, right? Like this is when it's becoming a thing and all of my friends, this is what they wanted to do, and a bunch of them were coming to USC. Um, and so I rode my bike and I had I had my resume on me. Um and I saw there was a table that said CIA." and at that point, they were looking for liberal arts majors. And um, everyone used to tease me because I was a history major. They thought it was like a pointless major. What do you do with that? <laughs> and my my story sister was like, "Haha, you should apply there. That's something you could do with your liberal arts degree." And I remember thinking that they worked foreign things. This I mean you have to remember I grew up with like Sean Connery still being James Bond so there was nothing about CIA that seemed like a, a career that like was something I wanted to do if that makes any sense and so yeah. well it's I interesting
1: because I had I had no not to interrupt but I just did I had no idea that the CIA would show up at like they career- do. Really? It's super
2: I- common. Um, like where I teach at TCU, they come to TCU, they come to SMU, um, which is really close to me. They come to UCLA, USC. It's actually not uncommon. It's very common. Yeah. The FBI does as well.
1: And it, it's- for the audience that doesn't know, right here is a book by Mark Polymeropoulos called Clarity in Crisis. Uh, for full disclosure, I grew up with Mark, <laughs> and uh, he got into the CIA right out of Cornell. Um, right. and He was in there, and that's how you know him as well, and he did mm-hmm. some crazy things that we don't know the full extent of, but, um, that's a whole other story, but I know that you know him. So back to this, uh, career fair, I guess you see the CIA, they're making fun of you and you're like, "Mm."
2: and Mark's a great guy. And again, that's another example of someone that went in like right out of college. It's not uncommon. And so I actually did go up to him and he was a really nice guy. And I said, do you guys work Counterterrorism, like do you do this terrorism thing and he said yeah but it, it's a really small group and their area of hiring focus at that time um, was actually they were looking for folks that spoke spanish um, because there were a lot of coup d'etats and revolutions going on in like central and south america at this time and then also russia they were looking for that that was their sort of focus well i was like well i don't do that but like here's my resume i, I really didn't give it much thought other than like here it is. If you call super, if you don't, no skin off my back. And they called two weeks later. <laughs> wow. Um, and so that's that's what started that. But it's interesting at CIA eh, most government agencies, I think Mark will to this too. You don't, you don't when you apply, you don't get to say, I want to work in this department with this. It, it doesn't work like that. They just put you, <laughs> put you
1: somewhere, yeah.
2: Yeah. What's that, and- uh,
1: What's that phone call like two weeks later? Oh. You say, hey, what's up? And they're like, uh, this is Joe Smith at the CIA. How how's that call go down?
2: Well, it's funny that you mentioned that. I don't think I've ever talked about this before. So it's, that's a good question, Joel. Um, so my roommate at USC, she she was actually an auditor. She's in a doctor. She's a remarkable human being. And um, we just got along really, really well. And so this is back in the day uh, to orient the audience. Like we didn't all have cell phones, right? Like it was kind of a luxury, right? And so, but we had, she and I had a shared like landline in our little room, if that makes any sense. And so I I think I was laying on my bed and the phone rang and she had just hung up from another call. So she picked up the phone. It was like right by her. And um, she asked who it was. And they said, you know, this is so-and-so recruiter calling, you know, from the CIA. (laughs) Joel. She hung up on them. (laughs) (laughs) I don't even know that I have that in my book, but she, she hung up on them.
1: How long Um, before they called back?
2: Like, right away. I mean, they called back right away. And, um, yeah. And and it was, it was the same gentleman, the same recruiter that was at the career. So, I knew it wasn't some bogus call because I had spoken to him. Um, so, no, he just called and was like, you know, where the interview, the process takes place in steps, right? And you, like, make it past different steps. And so, they wanted to start, like, that first step with me, if you will. So, that's yeah. how that call went.
1: Did you start to think what the hell have I done in my past? Like, you seem like a, uh, mm-hmm. don't take this the wrong way, Tracy. You seem kind of squeaky clean, but. Yeah. Uh, You're right. I think I, I once talked to Mark. Way. I think I once asked Mark, you know, were you, you know, because we were like partying in high school. Because They've got to look at everything,
2: right? Yeah. So I, um, let's just put it this way. I hope he doesn't listen to this. My brother more than made up for everything I didn't do. <laughs> let's put it that way. So, you know, every family has like their, yeah. And I love my brother for that. But, you know, I was very much bullied. I was very shy. I was very quiet. I really just kept my head down. I didn't want anyone to notice me. Do do you know what I mean? I was like just that kind of person that like people were like, wait, she existed, you know, and like that's what that was okay with me. Right. And so I was pretty squeaky. I mean, yeah, I drank underage, but that was literally the extent of, you know, my naughty behavior.
1: Yeah. So they call and then like, how quickly does it start to like get serious?
2: Yeah. So you have to remember I was 20, right? So this would have been like April, May of my junior year. So it was 20 and um, it starts right away. Uh, But because I was so young, I cleared really quickly. Most people take, you know, 12 to 18 months to clear. I cleared in like six, you know, like what kind of baggage does some 20 Year old have and so it was in November, of my senior year. They offered me a conditional offer of employment, um and then it was condi- it was contingent upon me graduating, like college.
1: Wow, yeah, um, <laughs> that's that's so wild. And at this point, like, does your family have an idea? Are you telling your dad? I'm thinking. Oh, of no. course. I mean,
2: they had to. My dad helped me fill out my forms. I mean, like, huh. you know, at this point, like, my parents obviously knew what I was doing because, you know, they had to interview with my neighbors, my parents, my mom came with me to do my polygraph test and all of that in DC. Wow. Cause again, I was only 20. I couldn't even rent a car. Right. Like to get. Right. <laughs> wow. um, and so yet yeah, my mom took my fake ID from me. <laughs>
1: and this is what, so what year is this?
2: This would have been 99.
1: Wow. So, and you have no idea what's coming two years later. I mean,
2: no. I, right. Like, you know, it wasn't. Yeah, I, I just figured I would go wherever CIA put me. I'd go in whatever office they put me. And I just realized that you can see my daughter's hamster cage. I'm so sorry. Uh,
1: I love um, it. <laughs> I can barely see it. But I had a have a trail when I was a little kid.
2: Um, so um, I just figured I'd go wherever they put me. And then once I'm there, maybe I can move around and get to the counterterrorism center, which is where I wanted to be. But um, I guess I got lucky if you will. And I think Markel tested to this too. In the CIA, it's a little different than what I think people expect from the movies. I knew where I wasn't going to go. Let's put it that way. I knew I was not going to go and work in their science and technology division because like, no one wants me doing math and engineering, <laughs> and physics. <laughs> like I knew I wasn't going to go there. I knew I wasn't going to be an analyst because most of the analysts have PhDs in like really specific subject matter, like South Korean politics, right? And I had this like broad liberal arts degree. I had a feeling I was going to end up in operations because those are the people that have kind of the broader like degrees, but I didn't know. And then I guess I got even luckier on top of it. And I was put in the counterterrorism center. So I started out of the gate. That's what I was doing like right away. Mm
1: -hmm. So that's kind of like the, uh, I mean, that's sort of like the James Bond department of the CIA, right? That's kind of like the sexy, right? We are the
2: ones that are recruiting human assets, right? So like we're going overseas or, you know, using other types of technology to recruit people to give us information that helps us make, you know, better national security policy and keep us safe.
1: And what you said earlier resonates because I think that's super important to the CIA is that you said, it's interesting. Cause my mom said the same thing as a Holocaust survivor. She never wanted to be noticed. She kind of wanted to go under the radar so yes. she wouldn't be seen. And yes. you said that too. Yes. And that's, you don't want someone like me that wanted to be in TV news and <laughs> ego, right? Like you want someone like yourself, who's going to be low key and not be spotted that you can kind of slip in and out of places, right? That's more of the personality type.
2: You're totally right, Joel. And that's interesting is um, like, the more I think about it, people always ask me, you know, would you major in to get there and all this kind of stuff. But I actually think that was less important. It was more about like certain personality traits that I had, right? Like I have very high, like emotional intelligence, a very high critical thinking skills, problem solving skills. Um, I'm definitely more of an introvert, you know, those kinds of things. I actually because you take so many psychological tests, I really do think that they're looking for that stuff. I do.
1: Did you, you didn't speak another language or did you?
2: So I didn't, we have to remember the time, right? They, so CIA, you can go to their website literally on any given day and they'll tell you what languages they're like looking for. And at, at that time, it was Spanish and Russian. So I didn't speak any foreign language and Right. like, And I don't speak Spanish. and I don't speak Russian either. And so I don't think it was necessarily like this prerequisite that was that important for me, because, again, the counterterrorism center wasn't like front center. Right. Like it is mm-hmm. is now.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, so you start your training um, and. I me mean, i don't know what you can i'm almost afraid to ask questions i don't know <laughs> i don't know what you're allowed what you're allowed to tell me and what you're not um and we just so everyone knows we don't really go over any of this we're just talking as though we're sitting in the starbucks here um so you're 20 years old and uh you go you get your polygraph you ultimately get cleared after you said six months normally it's like a year and a half so um obviously you graduate college right and then you just go you just go straight into it and can you tell Mm -hmm. us like where you were
2: of course so you go straight I graduated college in like the first week of May and you know started at CIA like two and a half weeks later right like you know so they give you a date that you start on you don't really pick it they just like give it to you Mm -hmm. um and so CIA is a little different than FBI and that FBI you go straight to Quantico right like you you don't um, as CIA, they actually make you spend time at headquarters first. So I actually think that's great because you get to know what all the different groups do and all of that before you get your, like, farm date, which is the date where you go, you know, for your training at the farm. Mine had a little wrinkle in that um, I was waiting for my farm date when 9-11 happened. So, <laughs> so I wow. was... And
1: the farm date is what again? That's where you go and... uh
2: i guess that's begin. where you begin your field training right um, Got it. it's just like quantico quantico is like four months same thing with the farm right like it's it's similar yeah. it's just at fbi you go straight into it you don't spend time in an office first whereas at cia you spend time in the office first and then okay, okay. it's just how they work it there
1: you get like firearm training or is that when you go to the farm
2: no. So CIA actually doesn't, um, offer firearm training to oh. operatives because we are not law enforcement officers. We are not allowed to be carrying guns all the time. Um, we get firearms training when we deploy to war zones. So yes, I did cause I deployed to war zones, but not everyone necessarily, you know, if you are an officer that spent the entirety of your career in like Western Europe, you don't have a need for firearms training. Um, mm-hmm. So, it, just, it depends. Is the answer to that one?
1: Wow. So, uh, so nine one one happens, nine eleven mm-hmm. happens, and you're supposed to be deployed to the farm, as you guys call it. So, what happened?
2: Well, so for me, um, I had been assigned to the counterterrorism center, and I was actually working the terrorist training camps. That was like my. Job, I guess when I was there was, um, look at the terrorist training camps, trying to get, you know, information, human intelligence, who's coming, who's going, what are they doing, you know, all that kind of stuff, um, on the terrorist training camps in Afghanistan. And so that's what I was doing. Um, on- prior, prior to nine,
1: prior to nine eleven.
2: And the day of 911.
1: <laughs> all right. So let me so let's get to 911. So 911 happens. I was I was working at Three World Financial, connected to the World Trade Center. I was doing business news on the floor of the stock exchange. So oh. I was living in Hoboken. I was supposed to get in, and my ferry obviously they stop after the first plane. So I watched all this from literally in person from across the river. But where were you? Were you like everyone else watching this? Um on a TV as it unfolded? Where, to take yeah, us through Yeah. So,
2: the... Well, first, let me back up about a week, if that's okay. Yeah, yeah, um, please. So about a week before September 11th, I get a call from the seventh floor, which, and Mark will say this, the seventh floor is where, like, the director of the CIA is, right? Mm-hmm. Like, you know... I, You know just like some brand new person like why why am I going here right like um I thought maybe I was in trouble but my my branch chief was like no you're not you know I'd gotten really good reviews and I was doing I knew I was doing an okay job and um I go up to the seventh floor and they're like we are going to need to brief you on this special program and it was myself and two other gentlemen um and I remember getting this briefing. They're like, you know, you, you guys have really been doing a good job. and We want you to work on this program, but it'll be when you get back, like, you know, from the farm, we won't be doing it until the spring and, you know, fine. And I was like, God, are we going to have to use this? Because I don't know what I think, uh, you know, about it. I'm trying to talk around it because it's still a little bit classified. Um, yeah, yeah. And um, I remember them saying, not unless there's a really big terrorist attack. Wow. And so um I didn't think anything of it. So on 9-11, I'm weird and I used to get into work at like 6 a.m. It's just when I liked to work because I could get off earlier and whatever. Uh-huh. So I got into CIA headquarters at 6 a.m. Um <laughs> one of the things we get to remember is that CIA, you can't bring your phone, uh, right? You can't bring um, your laptop. You can't bring, so you don't have access to open internet at your desk. If you want to go get open internet, there's like one building. <laughs> what do what
1: you it. do? What do you, is there like a, like, do you just leave your phone at home then? Or is I there like. leave
2: in my car. In the parking you leave hall. it
1: in your car and you just mm-hmm. walk inside. Um yeah. It's so crazy because you go to work on 9-11 at 6 a.m. And literally not your whole life, but the whole world is going to change in like three hours and eight minutes or whatever it is. Yep. It's so crazy. So you have no, by the way, prior to this, do they tell you, you know, obviously anything we're telling you here. I mean, like you couldn't go and call your mom on September 7th and be like, hey, mom, I just had a meeting. Uh, no. Oh,
2: God, no. Oh, my God. Everything is. <laughs> I'd be in jail. like that. You can't do that.
1: So everything, and they know not to ask you. So you're just kind of living this, you know. That part of your life has to remain secret. Um, yeah. Which is, by the way, before we get to nine eleven, I'm just so curious because I was that Jewish guy getting set up on blind dates, and I'm sure you were going through that. So, like, if you got set up on a date back then, would you tell people you're CIA, or would you have to tell them something else?
2: So that's a really good question. I have to be completely <laughs> honest with you. Um, I wonder. I do wonder what others would say about this. I don't know that this is good or not, and I don't know if I should be embarrassed about it or not, but the vast majority of people I dated worked at the CIA with me, and I have to be honest with you, it's easier, it's just
1: easier. That makes t- total sense, but I was wondering yeah. if you're going to say like you're a florist or something, you know? No,
2: make- <laughs> I never had to do that. Which, and I know because a lot of people are like, you know, you dated people, you worked with, but it wasn't like that. I don't want to say it was encouraged, but it wasn't no. discouraged either, right? Like that it makes, was. Just,
1: that makes total sense. Yeah.
2: It, it was just easier. People got it. We know what to ask and not ask, and like it's fine, yeah. you know. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. So I, so I digress, but I was, I think everyone's curious about that. So, so it's oh, not yeah, 11. It's okay. 6 AM. Okay. Your yeah. phone is in your car. You head into CIA headquarters.
2: Mm-hmm. And again, so we don't have internet, right? We don't have open internet. We have a, you know, secure mm-hmm. internet. We do have a TV like in our office, but like sometimes it doesn't get turned on. Right. Like it, cause you're just busy like doing whatever you're doing. Um, and I, did not know that the first plane had hit the world trade center because how would I know? Right. And so I get a call, you have two phones that sit on your desk. One is an, uh, Unsecure line, so like I could pick it up and call my parents or you know anyone. And the one is a secure line, and that's like only within the building. And so my unsecure line actually rings, um, which it really would never ring. So I thought that that was weird. And it was my friend, I'll call him Bob, um, but it was my friend who I'd actually started at CIA with, but he was placed in an outbuilding just because of some of the work that he did. He needed access to internet, so it wasn't there. And he calls me, actually, and I pick it up. And he's like, hey, it's Bob. Like, turn on the TV. A plane just hit the World Trade Center. And I was like, okay. You know, and again, I don't know if you remember this, Joel, because I know you were in New York at that time. But I want to say just a couple months prior to that first plane, you know, hitting, um, there was an incident where, was it like a Mets player or a Yankees player? I can't remember. Yeah, flew accidentally either flew his Cessna or something into a big apartment complex, like in Brooklyn or the Bronx. I could be way off on exactly. No, no, you're right.
1: Day. I don't know if it was a suicide or a crash, but I do remember that. I do and remember. And it had that. just
2: happened, like, a yeah. month or two prior. And that's, so that's what I felt, right? Like, because that was my frame of reference, like, for yes. for the time. And he's like, just, you know, turn on the TV. And I was like, okay, I just hung up. I turned on the TV literally just in time to see the second plane hit. And at that point, am I allowed to cuss?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. No.
2: yeah. It was like, oh, fuck. Like, that. this is definitely, I mean, there was no question in my mind that it was Al-Qaeda. Like, mm. zero, zero, none. We all knew um, what it was. Wow.
1: Did people start to gather in CIA? Like, are we no. guys just busy?
2: So, and that's a great question. It was weird it got quiet, like very quiet. No one's yelling, screaming, freaking out. And then the way that it works is you're in these like cubicle bays in the middle. And then like your managers all have like offices around you. And a lot of those office doors started closing and they were never closed, right? But they were closed then. And I think a lot of us just sat there and we're like, what the fuck just happened? Like, what, I mean, what are we supposed to do? Uh, Like, there wasn't... It wasn't the frantic that I think everyone's like assuming. Um,
1: yeah. Yeah. Well, I guess it's a good thing that you guys stayed calm because everyone else was freaking well, out. Right.
2: I don't even know that it was about staying calm. It was like, what, what, are, what are we doing now? Like what, we can't keep doing what we're doing. Like obviously I'm not going to be looking at terrorists. Like what are, what are we doing? <laughs> mm-hmm. And I think the the CIA had to like regroup. Right. And, and so obviously things changed a lot um, after that.
1: Wow. And that's the morning that uh, George W. Bush was I think speaking Ooh. to a school in Florida, uh-huh. I think, in and they, that's yeah, right. And the chief of staff, I think it was Andy Card whispers in his ear and mm-hmm. said something and you could see his whole expression change and uh, the rest as they say is history. But um so how did it again, I'm not sure what I can ask and what I can't. Ask you want. <laughs> so, I mean, You, you, not. I guess not long after, you're sent to actually like, well, into the field, right?
2: So yes and no. I'll I'll kind of explain. So obviously, okay, all of CIA was evacuated that day except for us, (laughs) Um, for obvious reasons. Um, And they would bring in. They brought in cops for us and and all that kind of stuff. They have. Starbucks there and food, <laughs> um, and so I, I lived there, you know, for a few days, and that's when I started working that program that I was talking to you about. That was highly classified at the time. I was the first person to work on it, and I think when I start describing it, people will start to understand what it is. But um, basically. I had to start working that program. It wasn't supposed to start until the spring of two. And then, you know, it literally started, um, a week after. And that was a lot. Um, you know, I was 22 with these two other guys in a very small room. I mean, uh, maybe eight feet. Um, and the work we were doing was so important and so, so new um, that President Bush was in there literally every day. George Tenet was in there every day. It was just a very high stress, high pressure environment, and you worked nineteen I mean, hours on.
1: You mean he was in CIA headquarters, or he was where you guys were?
2: He was where we were.
1: Wow, wow. Uh, would he come up to you, and I mean, would the president come up to come up to you and ask you questions?
2: Yeah, I don't think it it was literally, I mean, now it looks very different because the program has very much evolved, but at the time Uh it was, I mean, it was like, he was right here. I mean, it wasn't, no, he didn't ask us a lot because the work we were doing was so important and we were Mm -hmm. literally killing people that he knew to kind of just shut up and watch, I think was kind of what he was doing.
1: Wow. Some serious business right there. And you're how old at this point? 22.
2: And I was literally with
1: <laughs> people on a daily basis. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Wow. Um, wow. All right. Well, let's pick it up there. So uh, he's coming in there. And uh, that's so wild. So by the way, I can't get over the fact that there's a Starbucks in CIA. So those are like the most, mm-hmm. um, uh, those baristas are like the most, uh
2: well, the whole, this- Washington Post did a whole story about the Starbucks and CIA. It was like years ago. Really? Um, but yeah, there's a there's a Starbucks there.
1: Those guys have some serious uh, security checks going on in <laughs> those baristas. Um, so you're doing this work.
2: So that uh, work was a lot because basically we were working off of – I'm trying to figure out how to like talk about <laughs> it. Um, We were working off of a list of people that we were given – that it would be okay to neutralize. Let's just put it that way. And so um, we just like, we're tracking people off of that list. And I think it's funny because, you know, you have people that suffer like the side effects of like hand-to-hand combat, mm-hmm. but you also have to remember that this was a different kind of combat. And I'm like 22. <laughs> I'm, I deal with like the effects of, you know, killing people, but just in a different way. But it was also a way, I think all of us felt personally responsible for 9-11 mm-hmm. oh, I mean, we did those who worked in the counterterrorism center before nine eleven definitely felt like personally responsible and so i feel like we also thought oh this is a way to like even the score right like we can get bin laden and we can get these guys and this will be a way to right this wrong that we like missed if that's so
1: you're I don't know how to ask this either. It's just kind of funny because we're doing you interviews. Are. We don't know how to answer and I don't know how to ask without getting in trouble. But so you guys are obviously using, because you're in Washington, D.C., so you're using a form of technology, whether it's a drone or something else, to find targets and you're taking care of it, taking care of them from a a long distance. Let's just put it that way. So, sure.
2: and you know, whatever people want to think that program is, uh, I was the first person to work it. Um, that's
1: so crazy so
2: I don't talk
1: about it a whole lot so thanks for asking about it
2: yeah no that's wild so um, yeah and that's I
1: I mean I know you've been open about talking about you know suffering from PTSD I mean just because you're not like necessarily on a combat field you're still you know engaged in like military activity and you're basically, as you said, killing people. So I mean, does it you also mm-hmm. talked about how you just said you're you know, you're getting even and also just to get back to that time period is a lot different than today, which is all like bifurcated and crazy because yeah. Democrats, of Republicans back then we were really united uh, after nine eleven. So I'm sure you felt like you were being a real patriot and like helping save America in a lot of ways, but it also had a way on you a little bit.
2: Yeah. It was interesting. So it's weird because obviously I did that stuff that you're talking about, but then I did go to war zones. Right. And so I did participate in some of the handicaps. So it's like, I have it on both ends, right? Like it's weird. But then in terms of the nine 11 stuff, okay, we were united. You're right. As a country, from a political standpoint, we were united against this enemy. There's no doubt in anyone's mind. But here's the problem. I think people forget that almost immediately after September 11th, they started looking for people to blame, agencies to blame. And so the 9-11 Commission was like underway at that point. And they really put a lot of the blame on us. And so I think you had to deal, like we had to deal with that too, if that makes any sense. Yeah,
1: yeah. So you're in this program, you're the first person in it, not to mention a nice young Jewish woman, only 22 years old. And then- <laughs> I mean, things just continue to heat up, yeah, continue so, to escalate, escalate. Um, or by the way, are you at this point? Are you ever called? Are are you ever called to the White House? Are you ever asked to go there? To um,
2: I was not a White House briefer. Like we, we, there are people that that is their job is to be a White House briefer at CIA or PDB briefer. So, um, I mean, my, the stuff we were doing was being put into those reports. But I I think it's hard for people to understand. Like we could not, they couldn't afford to have us away for like ten minutes. Like because we just were always there, and so we would just like whatever intelligence we had, we gave it to the briefer and were like, go, like go do whatever with it. Yeah. Um, and so I worked that program for a couple months, but I think. One of the last things was that we had intelligence that um, Osama bin Laden was in a place called Tora Bora. Um, It was December of 2001. And we were so excited because we thought we're going to get his ass tonight. Um, But we knew we couldn't just have air support. We needed ground support, too, because if you bomb something, what do you think people are going to do? Run away. The people that survive run away. And so we're like, well, if he survives the bombing, we would need to have people there to, like, catch him if he were. And CIA ground officers agreed. Um, but again, there's only so many of them. We needed we needed the tr- the president to call ground troops in. Mm-hmm. And he refused to do that and said, we just want you to bomb. We, we're not sending ground troops in. It's too dangerous. And so we bombed, and then we found out that he got away that night. And that's when he escaped into Pakistan that oh, wow. night. And it was really hard being on duty that night because you do all of this shit, you know, to try to catch him. And then it's you don't get the backup sometimes that you Mm -hmm. need. And so that's I wasn't like rotated off because I lost Bin Laden. I was rotated off about a month later because the counterterrorism center like exploded. Right. In terms of size, obviously, Uh the missions changed. And so a lot of guys. Uh, from the Russia division, like, Mark, and, like, came in, because those were all the people that had been there a long time. They were all in the Russia division. Um, they came to kind of set up these new offices within the Counterterrorism Center. My my own boss um, was the chief of Moscow Station and then came to um, chair my division, which was um, Counterterrorism Center's Weapons of Mass Destruction Group. And then that's when I started deploying overseas, was, was at that point. And so, what,
1: When is that now? That is what, what's the time period?
2: Oh gosh. Um, maybe February or March of 2002 ish.
1: 2000. So now are you like exclusively at this point, sort of on the hunt for bin Laden overseas?
2: So my target changed. Um, see the counterterrorism center decided, okay. We just lost bin Laden, right, in, in Tora Bora. Let's set up a division that that's, like, all they do, CTC, UBL, so CTC, Osama bin Laden, and that's literally all they did.
1: Wait, what's um, CTC? What's that?
2: Counterterrorism Center.
1: Oh, okay, okay.
2: I didn't want to, to work there um, because I felt that the mission was a little bit bigger than bin Laden, mm-hmm. and so they um, asked me what division I wanted to go to, and I wanted to work a guy named... Abu Musab al-Zarqawi who is the founder of ISIS (laughs) and at the time we didn't know that obviously um he was bin Laden's poison dude I don't know any other way to say it but bin Laden farmed out a lot of his work um Mm -hmm. to people and Zarqawi was in charge of WMD attacks and so I always said that's what that's the division I want to go into so he became my target that's that Zarqawi became my target after. Well, wow,
1: but you um by the way, when Bin Laden escaped that night, did you ever think it would take that many years to catch him? Or did
2: I did. Think- so, I yes, I I always believed and all of us believed that night that he was in Pakistan. There was no doubt in our minds that that's where he was. Mm-hmm. Um we knew it would take a really long time because and I mean, I'm just going to be completely blunt. Um they are difficult intelligence service to work with. Yeah, <laughs> very difficult. Uh, some are easier than others, and they're they're a tough one. Um, mm-hmm. And I just knew that it was going to take time. And I have to be honest with you. I know this is going to sound. I don't mean this to sound callous. I stopped putting him, getting him at the forefront of things because you can kill these people, but you can't kill their ideas, mm-hmm. right? And so I think it became less important for me to get him and more important to start combating against this idea. If that makes
1: makes a ton of sense. Um, Now, you didn't speak another language at this point, right? So, I mean, again, forgive me, but if you deploy overseas, especially the Middle East, aren't you going to kind of stand out quite a bit?
2: So in terms of language, this is another fun fact about America. <laughs> yeah. I think we are the only country in the world where people only speak one language.
1: Yeah. Let's, let's be honest. My that. mom speaks six and I speak Exactly.
2: Yeah. Exactly. And my grandparents who were also, you know, in the Holocaust, yeah. and all, they all spoke four or five different languages. And so um, what's fascinating, and I think another misconception is that, you know, in the Middle East and Africa and all these other places that I went, the vast majority of people spoke English. Like this was, it was like not a problem. Um, And then some of the incarcerated terrorists that I spoke to, (laughs) um, I asked them straight up, like they all spoke English. There was only one that did not, that I had to use a translator for. And he didn't even speak Arabic. He spoke a a different dialect. Um, I asked them, you know, you all speak English. Like what's up with this? And they're like, well, why wouldn't we learn the language of the country? That's our enemy. And I was like, you're totally right. (laughs) <laughs> it makes a lot of sense
1: makes makes sense from a strategy
2: standpoint
1: yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah that's so crazy so can you tell us where you deploy to or now okay no, that's okay <laughs> when We're i
2: deploy uh, let me let me put it this way so when i deployed i deployed undercover so i i can't but i can say i can say that i went to africa um, mm-hmm. europe the middle east and then i was in afghanistan
1: and is it like the movies? Like, do they give you like the fake passport and alias? Is it? I mean, I all tell that me. you can't. Tell? <laughs> okay, I'm sorry, Joel. Uh, <laughs> That's all good. No, 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 no. That's all. This is good. I'm, I'm, I'm glad. So, tell me what you can tell me. So it's it, now. It's like what 2002 Ish, um, yeah. And you, this is basically the story: of the hunt for Bin Laden. But in your case, you're now going after Zarkawi, who eventually we get. Right. Um,
2: we got him about three years later, three or y- four years
1: later. Yeah. Um, thanks to you, and uh, <laughs> thank you for your service to our country. By the way. So. Um, yeah. So, how long does this hunt go on for? And like, what? What's? What can you tell me from there?
2: Well, it's it's for lack of a better word, kind of sucks because I can't tell you about the WMD attacks that I stopped, right? Because those are classified. <laughs> And we only know about our failures. Um, But I think, you know, the biggest thing for me, ultimately, the thing that I'm the most proud of is that ultimately Zarkawi was captured. Well, he was killed um, (laughs) by a drone strike. But um, that's what I'm the most proud of, because we were following his ass like, (laughs) like it was nobody's business. And I feel that a lot of the information that I was able to obtain through human sources, through detainees, um, through just in general, was able to stop, you know, future attacks. And I'm pretty proud of that.
1: Can you tell me, did you, did you ever go to Guantanamo? Would you have to go there to interview anyone or no? Can't say.
2: I'm going to put it this way. The people that were important were not at Guantanamo.
1: Interesting. Um, this is so wild. So, um, You're overseas. I mean, would you have moments at night where you're just like, I cannot believe this is just like, did you have like these outer body experiences where you're like, this is the biggest terror attack in the history of the world. I'm now a CIA officer, an agent. you say agent or officer? Officer. CIA officer. Correct. So would you just say to your like would you just lay it in bed at night and be like i cannot believe i'm doing this this is wild like would you have these moments or were you just so focused on the work
2: i was so focused on the work i mean that is literally what we ate breathe and we couldn't afford to be gone for two years at a time on our deployments things got a little weird right like after storm <laughs> you can't just have like an officer gone for like two years and so they like shorten all of our deployments and um, we were like, con- we were then having to go to our farm training, but it was like piecemeal and it was just like, everything was different, I guess. And so we just didn't have time to like, think about that, uh, necessarily. And maybe that's a good thing. I, I don't know.
1: Um, I'm trying to think of things that I could even ask. So like when you
2: ask and if I can answer, i will answer. And <laughs> if not, it's fine.
1: Um, so when you were overseas would your work primarily be in like an office or would you be out in the field trying to like get like actionable intel like would in other words would you be like knocking on doors or trying to track down family members of targets things like that I mean were you were you or was it more like computer work but you're just overseas
2: No I was out in the field um you know a lot of it is is Family members, extended family members, surveillance—you know all those kinds of things. Um, obviously, I'd go back to an office to like write reports up and things like that. But no, I'd say the majority of my day was not like spent in an office per se.
1: And when you're overseas like that, I know I know the word skiff, obviously from the United States. But would they would yeah. you have to go to a place like a, a safe house um, that was highly secured where you could? transmit information like mm-hmm. that I mean that that's yes. that's in the movies, but that's reality. Like you have to go somewhere where they obviously can't hack your computer or something along those lines.
2: Yeah, I think it would just it would surprise you probably where they are, those skiffs, but but yes, there are definitely skiffs um all over.
1: <laughs> and did you were you thinking at any point, and I don't even know, like did they did they at any point want to teach you like Arabic? Was that something that Yeah
2: suggested? so I think if I'd stayed longer, probably yes. Um, but the issue was, is that, so the Arabic immersion program is 18 months and, Um, and I couldn't be gone. They couldn't have like all these people all of a sudden now like gone for 18 months. Um, so yeah.
1: Um, wow. So, um, it's 2002 at that point. So how long are you like deployed and going back and forth on this hunt for bin Laden? Ends, ends Probably two, and
2: a half, two and a half years is non-stop
1: Never. non-stop
2: yeah that's a lot wow it doesn't seem like it's a lot but it's a lot
1: wow um and are you allowed to like are you allowed to check in at home like you have your own cell phone for private use where you can call
2: no so the way that it works um and one of the things that I. Got a good lesson in, which was awesome um, at the agency was about friendships, right? And so your friendships become family. So like one of my my two closest friends, they were bridesmaids in my wedding. I'm still friends with them. Um and so you have to appoint one of them as your power of attorney if you're not married, um, because they have access to, you know, my cover name and all of that good stuff. Um, And so they, I would keep in contact with them. um, And then they would then, you know, like relay things to my parents. They had, they knew my parents and like had relationships with them. So it was, it was good.
1: How intense is the training when you're taught, like you're going to be given a cover name and you can't screw that up. Like you can't (laughs) go into a store and I'm just going to, you know, an Islamabad and say, Hey, my name is Crazy. I mean, whatever. Like, I mean, how serious is that training? Like, um, where they it's, drill it into your head? I
2: don't know if it's changed, but it's way less serious than you would think it is and be comfortable with. Let's put it that way. Really? <laughs> we would quiz each other, like in my office, we would like have quizzes and whatever. Um, but it, it wasn't as serious as I think we would like to think it maybe should be. And perhaps it's changed. I don't know. Um, but it really wasn't all that... <laughs> it's so
1: so wild. So um now there's also like tremendous public pressure because it's in the news every single day. I didn't um, watch the I mean, news. I saw You did. That's probably smart. Um because Americans are uh, antsy and now it's taking longer than it should and now the Iraq war breaks out. Um so now people are getting angry at the CIA that they're not catching this guy bin Laden or Zarkawi fast enough. Right. But you just, you totally tuned
2: it out. I have to because, and I mean, this is, people like to knock on me, but I do have a bit of an addiction problem to like Real Housewives and that kind of stuff. But <laughs> the thing is, is that's what I would watch when I was stressed out because who wants to watch the news of themselves doing a bad job right or you like no one wants to watch that shit after that's all you've been doing all day long right and so you want to watch mindless tv like that's what you need to like calm down um and so that's what i started doing was just watching complete shit
1: (laughs) (laughs) so now i have this image of like uh high-ranking cia person chasing a lot and watching real housewives no
2: so when i was in afghanistan like the seals they all liked the bachelor and so like they would turn it on and we would just like sit and watch it and like hang out i mean that's just what we did
1: (laughs) (laughs) what's it like to be like a woman in that environment like you know when you're hanging out with seals who are like ultra alpha males
2: they were, the, I mean, like, they were really nice guys. I, they treated me super well. I mean, like, very nice. I think they treated me like a sister, almost. Um, but they also weren't overly protective. They're like, you're CIA. Like, you can fucking handle doing what you're doing. It wasn't ever like, you're a girl, let me help you. You know, It was never like that. But then it was also... They were always respectful. I never had issues. Maybe other people did, which is fair. I want to honor like that experience too. I always just had a great experience.
1: Well, wow. and when you're in these places, back to this, like, are, are you at this point? Are you are you carrying a firearm? Are you trained in all? Yeah, that? I
2: mean, obviously in Afghanistan, carry a firearm.
1: <laughs> you're cruising around, and, well, and would you?
2: First, there's the gun picture of me that's like all over the web.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I've seen that. When you, yeah. when, when you, um, like whatever, I, I don't know. When you would go out on a mission, for lack of whatever a term, the term is, would you, would you go with the seals? Would you go with, uh, like a security team?
2: It, it depends. Uh huh. I think it just really depended on what we were doing, right? And like, mm-hmm. I think the short answer to that is it depends. It
1: Sorry, depends. no, it's yeah. all good. And, and then so. This obviously goes on for years and years. So, um, is there a point where you kind of feel like uh, I don't know, just spent? Where you're like, yeah, I don't know if we're ever gonna, so, if we're ever gonna get there. I'm getting up at six in the morning every day. I'm doing everything I can do. We're just this is like it's kind of like going up a down escalator. Did you feel like yeah. you're in the water?
2: So one of the biggest things that happened, um, which was really tough. I get a lot of shit for it. So everyone calm down. Um, I, uh, so, you know, I worked Zarkawi, you know, I worked WMDs, but I didn't work a rock WMDs. This is al Qaeda. those are two different things, two different offices, whatever. Um, and so I know it sounds silly, but sometimes when we were back at headquarters, we would make charts of like who our targets were, like who we were looking for, who we killed, you know, with, like X amount felt really good, whatever. And we had this massive poster that we had made like around our cubicle base for when we were back. At work, and Zarkawi was at the top. Well, duh, he was our target, like obviously. And then there were these other like guys that we were trying to capture, or you know, whatever, on this chart. And um, I remember one day of the White House came down and asked for the chart, and we're like, I mean, our boss was like, Yeah, give it. To, why wouldn't we give it? There was no reason to not give it to him. And um, it just said um, uh, Al Qaeda, WMD, Zarqawi network. That's that's what the chart said. Mm -hmm. That chart, and he's admitted it in his book, uh, was then used by Colin Powell um, on the floor of the U.N. And the chart was renamed um, Zarkawi Network in Iraq. Wow. And what people don't realize is that, yeah, we were obviously upset. But what was really a lot harder was all of those targets that we had on there. We had their geo-coordinates of where they were, their phone numbers, their names, and their last known locations. And we had good ideas of where they were. We were very close to capturing some of them. They all went radio silent because, like, why wouldn't they? Because now they're like, oh, shit, my face is, like, all over the news. And they went, and they blew up um, subways in Madrid and killed a bunch of people. I don't know if you remember that. Yeah. is a direct result of the fact that I and my colleagues all lost locations of these guys um, wow. because of that. And I didn't leave like in protest of that, but I think that coupled with the fact that I was really tired of being overseas yeah. <laughs> um, was why I, I kind of was like, okay, I'm good.
1: <laughs> and then you just, and then you resign. You just say, I'm done.
2: Well, sort of. I mean, it's hard because I loved everyone there. I had like all these awards and medals, and yeah, so it wasn't yeah. like easy. Do you know what I mean? Like, I'm still yeah. really in friends with my boss. Like, I mean, marks my... Like, I didn't leave on like this bad, like note per se. You know what yeah, I mean? It was like, like a
1: super high pressure job that obviously like yeah. you can only do for so there long, wasn't right? No drama.
2: Like, there was no drama as to like why I left. But I just I felt like let's do the counterterrorism mission. But let's do that here in the U.S. And so then that's when I became a special agent.
1: Wow. Was that, um, just to, tra- just to transition to that real quick, but was that, um, what year was that where you switched over to FBI? Uh, five, before
2: five, over. something like that, yeah.
1: And is that like a pretty seamless transition? Is it easier for you to kind of do that, I mean, compared to what you had been doing?
2: Like, I think it was easier, obviously, for me, from a security clearance standpoint. They didn't need to clear me because I had my clearance that they could just use from the agency, right? Like, all of that was easier, but I don't think I realized how much the FBI and CIA, like, really don't like each
0: other Wow.
2: (laughs) uh, at the time. And, you know, it's two very different missions, right?
1: Yes. So it's interesting because I keep hearing that because I had... Ah, uh, Steve Peterson. I'm from the DEA, talking about how he caught the real Walter White from Breaking Bad, and he was saying the DEA and the FBI hate each other. So
2: yeah, I don't.
1: I think we all need to play nicer. Um, I
2: do not, could not agree more. I don't understand it, but like,
1: <sighs> so the night, and I forget the year. I should have looked it up, but and I should not have forgotten this, but the year that bin Laden, you know, now the, you know, the, the, 11, now the 2011.
2: 2011,
1: the now infamous story about the Navy SEALs, like the, you know, the helicopters crash, they get there, they take out bin Laden though. Um, when you got word that he was um, killed um, and the mission was ultimately successful, um, what was your reaction?
2: Not probably what you think. Um, I was like, I'm glad he's dead. Uh, obviously, I don't wish him well, <laughs> like clearly. But my concern was, well, now the American public's going to think we're done. We're done. We don't need to care about terrorism anymore. Bin Laden's dead. So Al Qaeda's dead. And I was like, we can't, I don't want that mentality, I guess. Right. Like, because again, you cannot kill an idea and it's still around. And so that's what I was worried about, to be totally honest with you. Like I
1: was happy, but you're like, it's not over. However, um, you know, strange things happen and not getting political, but all of a sudden, you know, the guy named Donald Trump, it's 2014. A few years later, after Bin Laden is killed, he announces he's running for president. And I feel like since then it's been Republicans versus Democrats, Democrats versus Republicans, all that like, Unity, we saw on 9-11, is out the window. Our country, you know, we saw what happened on January 6th. I mean, the country is definitely fractured, but I feel like we... And look, I worked in news this entire time, and there wasn't a day you could go without hearing about the Iraq War or the word Al-Qaeda or, and then ISIS. Mm-hmm. Now you never hear about it. What mm-hmm. What's going on? I mean, are they...
2: You know, I think... So I think first of all, and it's interesting, um, I worked at the CIA and the FBI under two different presidents, two different political ideologies, Democrats and Republicans. And it was awesome. Like, that's the thing. Like, it was awesome because, no, but it was great. Like, it was really great because there was agreement, there was disagreement, but it was healthy, right? Like, it was everyone, it was really good to experience two different political persuasions and so much continuity so that when Clinton left office Bush kept George Tenet as the head of the CIA like they didn't you know it was it was just I think that's a good thing in my opinion quite frankly but um so i, I don't know i think part of the problem is is we're very focused on hyperpolarization and hyperpartisanship and i think we it's hard when you have issues going on in in your own country, right? You know, you know, we got inflation, we have, you know, people struggling to put food on the table and we have all of these things. It's hard to then remember that we could be a victim of a, of this foreign entity, right. When you're trying to focus on your own home and what's going on right now. And I, I get it. I get where people are coming from with that. And
1: I don't know. I mean, this is a morbid question, but will there be another terror attack uh, on America? Yeah. On on America. And will, will it ever be at the same, will they ever be able to pull something off on the same scale as a nine 11? Was that, was that, I mean, to some extent, was that luck in a weird way?
2: No. I mean, I think the next terrorist attack that happens is only because we weren't creative enough to imagine it and what they're capable of. Right. Like who would have, who would have thought that let, let's go hijack all these planes, fly them into all these buildings and one to the Pentagon. Like, I don't know that that was, you know, we have a presidential daily brief that that's out there in the press. Now it's been declassified that came out. It's like August 8th or something of 2001 to Bush. And it was from the CIA saying, you know, people might hijack airplanes. Well, what, what's Bush supposed to do about that? Right. Like ground every airplane. You can't do that. <laughs> like, it's not, it's not yeah. possible. And so that's the issue, right? It's just a, lack of imagination, quite frankly, on our part, because that's wow. all we're doing. We're only guessing.
1: So so you think it's inevitable that there will be another terror attack? It's not over. I mean, ISIS, al-Qaeda, they might come back in a, with a different name or different form, but there's, they still hate America. They still want the West to fall, right?
2: Yeah. So I, I think ISIS, al-Qaeda, but I also think we have a homegrown issue, too. Like, I would not be surprised if we saw something like another Oklahoma City situation.
1: Why does it seem like, I mean, is it because there's so much other stuff going on, but it seems like it's been so quiet. I mean, news is fickle. uh, Don't say that, Joe. No, I mean, you know, like news, the powers powers that be want, you know, whatever's sexy. And right now it's, you know, Republican, Democrat. But what I'm trying to say is it feels like we've lost... Interest maybe, or lost sight of the fact that terrorism is still a problem. But it it is, you're saying.
2: Yeah. Look, I think the public may have have lost interest, but that's not necessarily their fault, right? Because I think, and again, like, look, I, I work for this channel too. Like, yeah. I don't I don't have an issue, you know, with news channels too. You know, they're focusing on whatever is going to sell. Like, I, I totally get it. I don't begrudge them of that at all. That's just the way the world works, right? My only hope is that our politicians are hopefully still funding, uh, the CIA's counterterrorism center and all of these things that will at least be proactive. Right. That's all I can hope for, um, at this point and that we just don't know about that. And that's okay. We don't necessarily need to know about that, um, per se.
1: Wow. Um, just, Oh, it just froze up for a quick second. So, um, Listen, this is super fascinating. I probably have ten million more questions, but um, and then you worked um on the FBI's Chinese counterintelligence team. So maybe we'll save that for a different time because that that's kind of crazy. Mm-hmm. Uh, in a split in a sentence, what did what did you do in in that in that regard?
2: Yeah, so it was one of the first Chinese economic espionage cases here in the United States. They were working for a defense contracting firm here in the U.S., naturalized citizens, been here 28 years, stole defense technology from the Navy, Department of Navy, um, and sold it to China. They are caught at LAX with all the stuff. And um, one of them was going to finish up his prison sentence in like about four years here now.
1: Mm. We're going to have to get Tracy back on. Um, And that is why your book is called The The Unexpected Spy, because like she said, Blonde Jewish girl from California um, who went to USC. Her dad was a professor there. You wouldn't expect her to be. Put it this way. If I saw you at Whole Foods, my first thought would not be CIA, FBI. But <laughs> I'm probably not alone. But Tracy Walter is a an American badass. Let's say that. Uh, she is one of the few women to serve in both the Directorate of Operations at the CIA and is a special agent at the FBI. As you just heard, from 2000 to 2004, she served in the CIA's Counterterrorism Center Weapons of Mass Destruction Group, and then she switched over to the FBI's Chinese Counterintelligence Team. She's now an author and an adjunct professor at TCU in criminal justice. Mm -hmm. She sits on the board of directors of girl security and go out and buy her book, The Unexpected Spy. Tracy, thanks so much for doing this. It was awesome. Um, anything you want to close with? Any closing thoughts?
2: No, well, just thanks for having me, Joel. I really appreciate it. And I, I, I just love your show.
1: Thank you so much. Love you, America. Love you, Texas. Love you everywhere.